rise to read God's Word this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I hope you have a Bible with you today as we study God's Word together. If you don't, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 987. And Lord willing, after today, we have only three sermons left in 1 Thessalonians, which would mean, Lord willing, from today, we have about a few more weeks in this wonderful letter, not only of the first letter to the church at Thessalonica, but we'll move right after that in about a month's time into 2 Thessalonians and what Paul has in his continuing instruction to this young church that has much to instruct us on. I trust today is what we want to look at is the first 12 verses of chapter 4. So let me read those for us and then pray for our time and we'll begin together. So listen now as God speaks to you through his perfect word. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, do help us this morning to hear your truth. Just as you taught the Thessalonians that we might abound in holiness before you, that love would be our delight in all things, to give us minds of humility and hearts of repentance as we want to know you more, to give us souls also of meekness and earnestness as we respond to your word. Help me to preach as you say I must, with clarity and with courage, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was a few years ago in Super Bowl 49 that what has been called the worst play in NFL history was called. It was on the Monday afterwards that all these autopsies of the play burst forth, and some of you might know what happened. The Seattle Seahawks were on the one-yard line of the New England Patriots at the end of the game. Surely it was going to be an easy touchdown. Russell Wilson was going to take the football and stuff it into Marshawn Lynch's gut, and he was going to barrel into the end zone. But no, he dropped back to pass and promptly threw an interception. That meant the Patriots won yet another Super Bowl. 
and caused no small number of pundits and former players to say they had never seen anything so ghastly in a play call before. But in these Monday morning quarterback audits, people began to talk about analytics, which so often dominate professional sports these days, saying there actually was a greater likelihood than people would realize that that was going to turn into a touchdown, a pass instead of a run. There's only a 3.1% chance that it was ever going to turn into an interception, so it actually was a pretty decent call. And if you pay attention to the world of athletics, you know how these kind of things of sabermetrics and even data analysis have changed every single sport. That's why you can watch a baseball game, and when a certain batter is up, there's nobody on the left side of the field, because he's still going to swing for the fences on the right side of the field. Why in the NBA game, you're tossing up three-pointer after three-pointer after three-pointer. Why in my own sport of soccer, no one really crosses much anymore. Or perhaps even in the world of the NFL on Super Bowl, you might pass instead of run. Because you want the information, you want the analysis necessary to excel at your sport. And the data analysts and the information providers that often make up a staff on these local teams will analyze all the players running throughout the game, all the various scenarios and situations in a game to say, according to the data, this is what happened, must happen for the team to excel. And it's quite easy, isn't it, to think about various vocations in life to know what information is necessary to know if you're going to excel, you can look at a sports team and say, well, you know they're excelling if they win championships. You can look to an author and know he or she is excelling because yet another book contract has come. That's brought forth yet another book being published, well-regarded and strong in sales. Or perhaps even objectively speaking also, a, a real estate agent knows if he or she is excelling in the trade by the number of houses on which he or she has closed. But what happens when you think about excelling in the Christian life? What happens when it means to wonder, how do I know if I'm abounding in godliness, increasing in pleasing God? A true God-exalting holiness is marking a local congregation. How do you know what information is necessary for you to analyze whether or not that people is excelling well, that's what our text is going to tell us today, answering those questions for that young church at Thessalonica, because that simply is the theme from our 12 verses today, qualities of a God-pleasing church. And we're going to see three. Number one is holiness, number two is love, and number three is work. So students, it's quite a simple text, yet I trust you will see certainly by the end how important and vital it is for us. You please God as you abound more and more in holiness, more and more in love, more and more in an honest day's labor. So we'll get to those in time because they actually begin in verse 2. But notice what he says in verse 1 of our text. He begins by saying, finally, then, brothers. If you know this book well, you know that it has five chapters. And for Paul to say the word finally at the beginning of chapter 4, uh, makes you wonder if he's much like many modern preachers today that will say, well, now finally for my last point. And 30 minutes later, he's still preaching. He's still instructing. But what you need to know is there's a clear section break between what has come before and what comes after here in the letter to the church at Thessalonica. Because if, if you've been with us in recent weeks, you know that the first three chapters, in large part, just finds Paul, Silas, and Timothy 
expressing gratitude for what God has done in Thessalonica. That he'd established that young church, that they had responded in faith to the preaching of the word. That it wasn't just the word of men, it was the word of God delivered in fullness of power and conviction and the Holy Spirit. And they were remaining steadfast to Jesus Christ amidst hardship and persecution. So you could almost say for 60% of the letter, Paul is abounding in thanksgiving. Certainly even if that's not the right percentage breakdown, you would say that the majority of this letter is the missionary team being grateful for what God is doing in a local church. And you have to, again, ask yourself the question, is the majority of my life given over to gratitude and thanksgiving? If you live long enough in Christian churches, this grace of thanksgiving and gratitude seems to be something in which we have minored in the school of Jesus Christ while doing our doctoral studies in the school of complaint and criticism and grumbling. Yet what... The Apostle Paul is always doing, modeling for us, of course, there are reasons everywhere you look why you can be grateful for what God is doing. But he's turning his attention now in verse 1 through the end of the book to ethical and theological concerns that are striking the church there at Thessalonica, which is important even to note from the outset of chapter 4 because Paul has already called this church uh, an exemplary church. We've said it's a model church. But here he is now in the last two chapters saying, there's some things you need to grow in. There's some things you need to know better. So, so kids, you need to learn even from this very part of the book's structure that you can be a model church, you can be in an exemplary church, but you'll never be in a perfect church. Satan often runs Christians ragged, leading them from one congregation to the next, thinking that they're going to find the perfect church. When you can be in a model church like the church there at Thessalonica, and Paul can come along and say, now let me help you understand where you, where you need to grow, what you must do different. Verse 1 continues, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. He's going to use that language of abounding, excelling more and more a few times in this passage. And here's what he's saying is, my concern now, as as we've kind of shifted from the narrative of how the church began at Thessalonica, what our ministry was like in your midst, why we're thankful for you, what you need to do. You're doing a great job pleasing God, but you can't abound more and more. And even you must abound more and more. The best-selling book in the 17th century in English was the Bible. The second best-selling book, some of you might know, is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. But it was the third best-selling book that gave it a run for its money in the 17th century. It was a little devotional manual called The Practice of Piety that was so widespread in English churches at the time that one pastor complained that his congregants had placed the practice of piety and its authority on par with the Bible. And this book was simply titled, The Practice of Piety, subtitled, Directing a Christian How He Might Walk to Please God. Publish a book like that today, I dare say, it wouldn't be terribly popular. But what we find, Paul is doing exactly that. Here's what it looks like for you to walk to please God. And it begins, number one, please God with your holiness. Notice verse two. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus I'll only mention it once because it does show up multiple times in this passage, but Paul consistently is reminding the church there at Thessalonica, I already told this to you, and I'm going to tell it to you again. 
God already mentioned this to you, but I'm going to tell it to you again. You know, faithful church leaders understand that most of teaching ministry in the church, instructing people in the church, is not helping them learn things they never knew before, but it's helping them learn things they must not forget if they're to follow Christ in faith. Okay, you, you know this already. But let me expand on it, Paul says. Please, God, with your holiness, verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You know, students, I've talked in years past, even when I used to lead a student ministry, about often tattooing verses on your heart. If you wanted to tattoo a verse on your heart, verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 4 is a very good one. Because there will likely come a point, students, in your life in the not-too-distant future. And if you haven't asked it before, you will ask the question of what's God's will for my life? What does he want me to do in terms of what college I attend, what university I go to, whether or not I should pursue this relationship? Is this job right or is this vocational calling better? But it couldn't be more black and white, could it? This is God's will for you, your sanctification, that he's called you as we're getting ready to see to holiness. But this is, of course, emphasizing a particular aspect of holiness, abstaining from sexual immorality. And why Paul singles out this aspect of holiness for the Thessalonians is, is necessary if you better understand the first century culture of Rome. Many Christians, of course, look out on our world today in the Western world of the United States in the 21st century and say it's all terrible. It was worse in the first century when it comes to matters of sexual ethics. It was assumed that a man would have multiple women with whom he was sleeping, whether or not he was married. Homosexuality was assumed to be normal. Even pederasty was assumed to be just a natural way of satisfying a fleshly desire. Well, cities were well known for their prostitute cults, especially port cities like Thessalonica. And so when Paul is telling them to abstain from sexual immorality, remember that this is a young church that certainly only a few months before had been planted in Paul's mind, established in the faith, no older than just a few years by the time he would have been writing this. But of course, this then would have been full of people who previously, a number of them, would have been living and pronounced sexual sin. Certainly, they were tempted and even invited by the work of Satan's schemes to return to a former way of life. And he says, no, you must not do that. Abstain from sexual immorality. And you'll see in verse 4 and 5 that self-control and self-denial is utterly necessary to this part of holiness. Verse 4 says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Be not surprised when the unbelieving world has no interest in Christian sexual ethics. The language of verse 4 even is something that's a little bit difficult to translate because it could be translated in such a way that it says, well, control your own body. Or as other even English translations will say, well, get a spouse lest you burn up in lust. And I think the ESV has a good translation of it here, but even if it is the other, certainly the simple point that Paul is making is understand that God has placed the sexual intimacy, that most basic of human desires, into one place. And only one place, which is one relationship between one man and one woman, which is the covenant of marriage. The way that I've even talked about it with some of our children is you've got to understand that God has given you this desire 
He's placed, and it's a good thing in your heart when you use it rightly. In the same way, you might place fire in a fireplace or a hearth, and it brings blessing to the home. But if it gets out of that place, it's just going to burn it all down. And how many of you know that true holiness and sexual intimacy and morality is a blessing that God has given His people? But sexual immorality, when it bursts out from the only place where it belongs, tends to burn many things down. And so important is this singular facet of holiness. You'll notice in verse 6 that God attaches a solemn warning to it. Let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. The great 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody was in the north of England in 1881. And he told this story often later on in his subsequent sermons where he was in this kind of northern port area of England. And an unusual storm had struck the country in that part of England. And for days and days in a row, it was raining and keeping men inside. And it was on Friday one week that suddenly the sun burst forth through the clouds. And all the fishermen in this port city raced off to their boats. It's time to get to work. It's time to perhaps pack my pocket with the money that I do need. Yeah, D.L. Moody told the story was the harbor master that day, even though the sun was out and it was bright and shiny, was still hoisting the warning signal about a storm. They all think they had forgotten to take it down and he played with them. This harbor master did. No, no, it, it's coming. I promise. It's on the way. But off they went to collect that day's fish and soon enough the seas began to rage Clouds began to blacken the sun, and only a precious few of the 41 ships that left ever came back, all because they didn't heed the warning. And parents, as you train your children, you must warn them about the realities of sexual sin. Those of you in here today that remain in unrepentant sexual sin, perhaps even unrepentant secret sexual sin, do you not find a solemn warning attached to the fact that this, of all things, gets a warning that the Lord is an avenger in these things? And that language of an avenger is language from the first century law court. It's essentially talking about an individual that would exact justice upon a criminal or a, a culprit. And what Paul is saying is the Lord in his righteousness and holiness will exact his vengeance upon people that have fallen short of what is really his seventh commandment. And you might be in here today and you've fallen short repeatedly, perhaps even stunningly, of God's command to sexual holiness. I wonder if you'll have anyone defend you when God summons you to his eternal law court to appear before his bar to give an account for your life. The good news of Jesus Christ, this gospel that we preach, is that God has provided a defense. He's provided a defender, His very Son who lived perfectly, therefore dying righteously, representatively for sinners like you and me. That if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, what you'll find is His victory, not vengeance, fall upon you. You'll find forgiveness for all of your failings. You'll find His Spirit sanctifying you instead of heaping shame upon shame. But of course, you must come to Jesus Christ to break this power. 
in your life. He underscores it, the solemn significance of it, doesn't he? In verse 7 once again, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Students, it's a similar point, of course, that he's just made in verse 3. So you might have to ask after verse 3, oh, What's God's will for my life? Well, your sanctification, your sexual holiness. Well, what's God calling me to? Verse 7 might lead you to ask one day. Well, he's calling you, isn't he? To purity and to holiness. It's why Paul can say in another one of his letters to the churches there in the area of Ephesus, he says, You have been chosen before the foundation of the world that you would be holy and blameless before him. So please God with your holiness. Number two, please God with your love. Look at verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And isn't it a wonderful thing here that Paul even underscores the ordinary ministry of the word as you have been taught by God. Uh, through his simple servants, his ordinary ministers, the ordinary relationships in the church centered around and permeated with the reality of God's word. You have been taught by God to love one another. So surely it has to be true that when Paul was planting the church there at Thessalonica, he said, the second greatest commandment is you love your neighbor like yourself. The Lord Jesus Christ himself told his disciples, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another, and by this, all the world will know that you are mine, if you love one another. One of the greatest of the early church fathers is a man named Tertullian. He was a relatively formidable foe in his writings and urgency and earnestness of his ministry. Like many at that time in the patristic age, he thought that a good offense was necessary for the church to have a defense against the pagan critics that were always wanting to tear it down. And so in one of his apologetic works, he has this kind of imaginative sequence of paragraphs where he wonders what the church must be like in order for the watching and unbelieving world to take notice of it. And as he wonders aloud and imagines, he says, What if they looked in our windows and through our doors and in our life and said, Look how they love each other. It's simply an imaginative way, isn't it, of what Jesus said in John 13, that you must love one another, that the Thessalonian church was already doing. You see verse 9 into verse 10. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. If you want to apply that to our current context, in a real way, what all the churches of the North Texas Presbytery say at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, what love they have for one another. And how simple yet eternally significant is such a thing that someone might come into our church and say, yeah, it looks kind of weird. They do some strange things. But my, they love one another. You know, I can't get down a hallway with much degree of safety because kids are running around everywhere. <laughs> but they love one another. It's not like anything I've ever seen before, and I'm not really actually sure that I like it. But they love one another. Please God with your holiness. Please God with your love, number three. Please God with your work. You see, he continues in verse 11. 
calling us to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you. Our kids, I wonder if you have spoken to a sibling or perhaps a friend recently and simply said, mind your own business. You know, maybe they were always looking over your shoulder. Maybe they wouldn't get out of your room. Just mind your own business. And what you see now in verse 11 is that there is something spiritually significant about minding one's own business. Because what Paul does, you notice in verse 11, is he attaches these three responses, these three realities that we almost could say are just ways in which we love one another. He says, to aspire to live quietly. The actual language there is more study to live quietly. How different that would have been in the first century Roman world that prized pursuits of glory, prized pursuits of honor in our 21st century world that prizes the pursuit of getting a platform. Just study to live quietly. Why Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, pray for governing leaders, all the authorities over you. Why? That you might live a quiet life. That's godly and dignified in every way. And of course, he continues, second phrase there in verse 11, to mind your own affairs. Understand that you only mind your own business if you have business to mind. You're only going to mind your own affairs if you have affairs to mind. That laziness and idleness are fertile soils in which sin and disobedience grows, particularly busybody and gossiping. And this seems to be have a unique temptation for the church there at Thessalonica, because Lord willing, as we'll see in ensuing weeks in our study of Second Thessalonians, by chapter three, Paul will return to this matter of hard work, minding your own business, not being idle, with even stricter admonitions to that young church, which naturally brings us to the third one, to work with your own hands as we instructed you, that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. A good day's labor is not just satisfying work. It shows forth your sanctification in Jesus Christ. It's why some of you might know that scholars that don't love the Lord at all, in a historical sense or even sociological sense, these scholars will talk about the Protestant work ethic. That in previous centuries, there's been something noticeable about God's people and how hard they work. Please, God, with your holiness, love, and work, these are qualities of a God-pleasing life. And as we come to an end, let's now think about a God-pleasing church. You know, for as long as I can remember in my school year years, I would wake up early in the morning on weekdays, and the first thing I would do is pack my lunch. And much to my mother's exasperation, particularly as she bought groceries, is I would go weeks and weeks and weeks. She would even talk about it as months and months and months. Uh, making the exact same thing, so it was easy to know what to buy for the lunch that Jordan would make. But then all of a sudden, with no warning whatsoever, I would just change. I don't want that anymore. I want to have something else. And this happened one year with yogurt. <laughs> I always had yogurt, and then one day I evidently had nothing to do there at the school lunch table. And I read that strange phrase that you always find on yogurt, and some of you know intuitively of what I speak, live and active cultures, <laughs> thinking about wiggling things that weirded me out in strange ways to never want to eat yogurt, well, certainly for a small portion of time not eat yogurt, again, until an adult told me, well, you know, it just means it's good for you. 
And there is a live and active culture, isn't there, that God expects in his church among his people for their good. And it's a live and active culture of being zealous to please God. Have you recently woken up in the morning and say, Lord, how can I please you today? Lord, help me please you today. Well, the Thessalonians were to be a God-pleasing church. No doubt we're to be a God-pleasing church as well. So let's just think about two final things as we begin to close about a God-pleasing church culture. Number one, a God-pleasing church culture is different. It's certainly no revolutionary thing to say when he's calling them to holiness, which means to be different, which means to be set apart. But understand how the ways in which the Thessalonians would have been set apart in the watching world of the first century are the same ways in which we're to be set apart in the watching world of the 21st century. In a culture at that time that said, just fulfill your basic fleshly desires however, whenever, and with whomever you want. God has called you not to impurity, but in holiness. And a culture that was all self-centered, all about your selfish pursuits, doing whatever it took to get yours, love one another. And a culture even at that time in the first century that would say, if you were working hard, it was proof that you had done something wrong because only the slaves worked hard. In fact, if you weren't doing any work, that was probably a sign of you'd done a lot right, successful and wealthy and rich. You didn't need to work. Here comes Paul saying, no, you work hard. And certainly in our context today, that thrives on excitement, entertainment, living loud, looking loud, loving loud. There's something incredibly different when God's people say, we just want to be quiet in our love and holiness as God has called us to. A God-pleasing church culture will be different. Number two, a God-pleasing church culture will be dependent. Dependent. Certainly, you don't have to live long in the church to wonder why it is that we don't make as increasing strides in these areas as we thought we would. Perhaps it's because we're not as dependent as we should be. Notice what he says in verse 8, Therefore, Whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Perhaps you in your own life are struggling against sexual sin and you're wondering why there is no conquering of that temptation and that bondage. I wonder though if you're striving in the spirit that Christ has poured out into his people's hearts that you might mortify that sin. Perhaps you've looked in your own life and thought, why is it so difficult for me to be patient with people who are different? That perhaps even frustrate me and upset me. Are you letting the Spirit's love fill your soul? And why is it that all I want to do is nothing? I just want to fulfill my own idle desires. I can't work hard. Certainly, I'm finding it difficult to do an honest day's labor in Jesus Christ. Well, the Spirit is given to you to strengthen you in the work to which Christ has called you. So this then, of course, is, is a church that pleases the Father. It's one that's rooted in the Son. It's one that's dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Of course, a church that's abounding more and more, excelling in holiness, in love, and hard work. Let's pray together.
Father, we ask that you would make us holy as your Son is holy. That you would sanctify our minds, our hearts, and our hands, that we might serve you all of our days with love. That we might work for you with diligence in the Spirit's power. That you might be seen as glorious and beautiful in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.